forever. Dog. Comic books, comic time. Writers and artists are on the line. They make a splash as a comic's red and take us on a trip behind the spread. Watch out for comic book commentary. Spinning or winning inside, fix how they got a hot idea. Narrative, character, visual tricks, and onomatopoeia. Uh huh. It's comic book commentary. Okay, is the song over now? Can I can I start? Is the song still? All right. All right. Okay. All right. It's over. All right. I can start talking now. So, hi, I'm Ed Brubaker, and welcome to Comic Book Commentary Podcast, as the song just told you. Um, I am here today to talk to you about my new graphic novel with Sean Phillips and uh, his son, Jacob Phillips, coloring. Uh, It's called Bad Weekend. And it is a comic book about comic books, sort of. It's a comic book about... A distinguished cartoonist that I made up uh, at the tail end of his career in the late 90s, going to a giant comic book convention to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award. And I've never done a thing like this where I just flip through a book and sort of do a director's commentary. So uh, I tried a couple versions of it and I felt very awkward just sort of flipping through the book and talking about it. And so instead, I asked a couple friends to send me some questions they want me to answer about the book that they thought would lead to some more commentary about process and, and the background of where this book came from. So... The first question was an obvious one is what inspired the book, which is a really long story, actually. Like the book takes place in the late 90s uh, in a time period when comic books as an industry were sort of on the verge of collapse. Marvel had declared bankruptcy. Stores all over the country were going under. A speculator boom had just ended. And what had seemed like this biggest industry in the world was, you know, just going under. And, you know, right around the corner, of course, we all know that the X-Men movie was about to come out and Marvel was going to, you know, revitalize themselves a bit and things would turn around and go through a bit of a heyday for a while. And now in a lot of ways, when you listen to people talk about comics, it seems like comics is, you know, in another state where we all expect it to go away. And, and so part of the reason I put the book in this time period was because it was during that, that period where everyone thought maybe this is all going to go away. And here we are 22 years later and, uh, you know, it didn't go away. And I think comics as an industry and as an art form will probably always be with us as long as there's any kind of publishing it's, you know, it's words and pictures. And as Harvey Pekar likes to say, or liked to say, uh, you can do anything with words and pictures. It's a very powerful art form. So part of that, inspiration for setting the book in that time period, though, was, you know, I grew up going to conventions in the 70s and 80s when I was just a kid. And I used to haunt these artist alleys and listen to the old timer cartoonists from the 50s and 60s talk about the artists they like and show each other their artwork and grouse about some editor they hated working with. And so I was always just trying to sort of be this invisible kid absorbing all this stuff because, you know, I'd grown up, you know, a comic book kid, like I'm sure any of you that are listening to this uh, podcast, you know, someone who grew up reading comics probably and spent their life sort of wishing that they could be part of that world somehow. And, you know, from the time I was 
three or four, I was drawing my own comics and trying to make up stories and heroes and things like that. So that was just, you know, my escapism from my own sort of miserable Navy brat childhood of constantly moving around and not having, you know, a ton of really close friends because of that. So comics for me were, you know, this, this sort of thing that made me feel like good about life when I was a little kid. So, you know, when I discovered Comic-Con when I was a little kid, that was just mind blowing. And so, you know, but I grew up seeing a lot of these guys, like these guys who had been my heroes, sort of, you know, I would see them from the time I was a little kid at a convention when they were sort of at the top of the industry. And then, you know, you see them in the nineties at these conventions and there's some guy in artist alley that, you know, no one really cares about. And I always thought there was a huge tragedy in that. And then probably in the mid nineties, a friend of mine, this guy, Al Columbia, who was a great cartoonist, uh, still is a great artist and cartoonist when he publishes, he had been, uh, famously, he was about to take over big numbers from Bill Sienkiewicz. And there's many stories about what happened, how he quit working on the book and whether or not he ripped up his artwork or not. And Al told me he never did, but who knows? Um, but one day Al was over at my place for some reason, mid nineties. I think we were doing like a 24 hour comic day or something like that with a couple cartoonist friends. And, uh, he told me a story about when he was Bill Sienkiewicz's assistant and how they had been in the same building as Stan Drake, who was the guy who was in the passenger seat of uh, Alex Raymond's car when Alex Raymond died. And, he had in his notebook, I think I might have even seen one of the pages in his notebook that he had just written, don't end up like Stan. And at that time, Stan Drake was drawing Blondie and was at the tail end of a really long career. He'd suffered physically most of his life. And I just remember listening to Al tell the story about this sort of tragic old cartoonist who at the beginning of his career was probably considered, you know, one of the five or 10 best artists in his field. And I don't know a lot about Stan Drake other than, you know, the story that Al told that day, but it always stuck with me. And as I got more into comics professionally and met a lot of, uh, other cartoonists or artists or people who I'd grown up idolized, you know, idolizing, sorry. Um, then, you know, bits and pieces of this story started taking shape in my head. This idea of a, of a young, you know, a young artist who's like a, a wannabe, who's an assistant, you know, having to sort of chauffeur around their old boss who, you know, they used to assist for and, and who, you know, is now at the tail end of a, of a distinguished career with almost nothing to show for it. So that's kind of where the, the book was inspired by was just a lifetime of going to these conventions and then, you know, a good 20 years of working in comics and sort of seeing a lot of this stuff up, up close, uh, firsthand inside the conventions, inside the publishing companies, you know. I've just sort of been around all that. So it was very easy for me to drop into writing a crime story that took place at a comic convention. So I guess the next question then is how much of what takes place in the book is actually real. And while the book is a work of fiction, the character of Hal Crane is, you know, he's an invention, but 
just about every event in his career that's mentioned is based on something that is real or is a story that I heard about an old cartoonist or comic artist, uh, you know, several different people that uh, whose sort of lives I've rolled together into a character who, you know, probably has like all characters that you write bits and pieces of me in there, I'm sure. Uh, and this is, you know, I should mention before we go any further, if you haven't read the book, go pick up the book, read the book, then come back and listen to this because some of the stuff I'm going to talk about in here will literally spoil the book, uh, and figuratively spoil the book, uh, if that's possible. Um, so anyway, Hal Crane is, you know, is a loose conglomeration of a lot of people, but I'm sure, you know, some of Hal's bitterness about the comics industry is reflective of some of my bitterness about the comics industry. Uh, you know, it's no secret, uh, that, uh, you know, comics as an industry tends to treat its creators not great when they don't own their own work. Uh, when you go work for one of the big companies that owns all the copyright and owns all the characters, you are working for hire, which means they are the official authors of the work. Even if you create something whole cloth, uh, this is something anyone in my generation or later has known about, uh, since, you know, the seventies and eighties, at least because you see the treatment of guys like Jack Kirby, who created most of the Marvel universe or Steve Ditko, who co-created Spider-Man, um, you know, or the guys who created Superman, who sold it for like $135 or something like that. And, you know, could never get the rights back or never get much of a better deal until they were old men. This is an industry that's been founded on, you know, taking advantage of dreamers to a lot of, to a large degree. And the problem of course, with that is we all love comics anyway. And, you know, a lot of people would rather work in an industry, even knowing that, you know, if they create something that's going to make, you know, Disney or Warner brothers or any other company, you know, millions or billions of dollars that they're going to get, you know, pennies at best. Uh, but they still, love the idea of working in this field and getting their work seen by people. And, um, you know, I love that people come to my door on Halloween dressed as the winter soldier sometimes, you know, and, uh, at the same time, you know, I have conflicted feelings about, you know, all of that anyway, because that's just what it is. Life is not, you know, life is not one thing or the other. Life is a series of gray areas that you have to learn to, to navigate. And I was always fascinated by the fact that I knew everything about how all these characters, how these, all these, uh, creators had been treated over the years and that I still, you know, was, more than happy to go, you know, jump on working on these characters because it was something I'd grown up with and, you know, just this world that I knew and that I could be a part of. And, uh, you know, I was, I, I didn't turn a blind eye to that stuff. I just thought, okay, well, this is part of what we accept when we work in this field. But, you know, the longer that you work in a field, the more that the stuff that you all just turn a blind eye to and accept kind of starts to wear you down a bit. And, you know, so I wanted to write something about that and creating a character like Hal Crane allowed me to, you know, channel some of my own personal beliefs into that while taking things I'd been hearing for my entire career from, you know, the, the artists and writers that sort of mentored me or that I had grown up worshiping and become friends with 
And I could take that and channel it into, you know, some kind of work of something that might say something about comics. That was, that was sort of my hope. And to also say, you know, something maybe about the, the relationships between, you know, assistants and mentors or the, the younger generation and the older generation and how your heroes sort of fade over time potentially. Um, so that's, you know, a little bit about that stuff. Uh, but you know, there is a lot of things in the book that are things that I, stories I heard that real people did. There's, you know, there was a famous artist who had gambling problems and who was, you know, known sort of publicly known in the industry that was never discussed publicly that he would occasionally pilfer original art when he was turning in his own pages to the publisher. This is way back in the late sixties, early seventies. Um, and then that stuff would turn up on the market. I mean, this is during a time period where a lot of the people who worked at the companies were just walking out the door with art and artists were, you know, not getting their art back from the publishers at all. So, you know, again, it's a little bit of a gray area, but you know, it was pretty well known that how a lot of art turned up on the market in the sixties and seventies as people were just walking out of offices with it. So stuff like that was real. There's a line in the graphic novel where Hal talks about how back in the old days in the seventies at the convention, you know, there'd be a guy who was throwing a big party with, you know, the implication being there might be, you know, drugs and prostitutes or, you know, a lot of alcohol, and, you know, these are things when I was a kid growing up, I worked at several comic stores and one of the stores I worked at when comic, the first time we went to Comic-Con, me and the boss, who was probably 20 years or more older than me, he told me, you know, back in the old days, the seventies, this convention really swung and he had lots of sleazy stories about stuff, which, you know, as a 16 year old kid just all sounded amazing to me. So that kind of stuff always stuck with me. And, you know, you hear stories about people who were in the business who were like mobbed up and leaned on editors to get work. And you'd hear stories about, you know, artists who'd get in fist fights with editors over stuff. And, you know, the only people I knew some people who, who worked in comics, who were some pretty volatile characters who would get drunk and get in fights and stuff. So I, you know, I always was attracted to those kinds of stories. I like crime stories. I like stories of, you know, that show all the, the good and the bad of humanity. That's the kind of stuff I'm always attracted to. So the book is attempting to take a lot of stuff that really happened and a lot of stuff that, you know, that I wanted to write about and sort of blend it into this sort of fictional reality, our own version of, you know, a fake comic book world. Okay. Now, speaking of spoilers, uh, there's also little Easter eggs, a couple in here that I want to point out for those of you who read the book. Uh, there's a scene early on in the book where Hal Crane and Jacob, his old assistant, go meet some sleazy art dealers in a hotel room and, and Hal signs a bunch of bootleg animation cells that the dealer's going to sell under the table at the convention. And, uh, the dealer in that scene, Hal asks him about some missing artwork of his that he's wondering if he's heard anyone trying to sell. And the dealer says, you want me to call Scott? Well, that 
is a reference to my friend and old editor, Scott Dunbeer, who was the person who sort of got me and Sean to, uh, to become a regular team. But Scott started out his career as an art dealer and has, uh, I believe, you know, a huge collection of original art still to this day, though he sold a lot of his biggest stuff off. Uh, and through Scott, a long time ago, I was able to meet uh, a guy named Dave Mandel, David Mandel, who was the showrunner of Veep for a long time and had worked on Seinfeld and uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And Dave, I would Dave is probably, if not the largest collection of really amazing comic art uh, in the world, then, you know, the second largest. And Dave, uh, David, sorry, <laughs> agreed to uh, let me use his likeness in the comic. Uh, I emailed him and asked him if it would be okay and his name. But when putting the book together and writing it all, even though I used the names of some real comic people here and there, uh, to sort of blend in with the fictional history, it just felt weird to have a real person be, you know, robbed at gunpoint in the book who, even though he's a friend of mine and I know him, like it just still felt weird. So I changed his last name from Mandel to Mandrill, which is a very comic book kind of name. So the next question I got from a friend was about talking about Star King versus Danny Dagger. Uh, mention like, you know, the comparisons between those two and what they represent. So Star King, if you've read the book and read it close enough, you, you know that Star King is a famous comic book strip from the, you know, 30s through the mid 50s. And that Hal Crane uh, got his start in comics as a background assistant on that comic strip. It was his favorite strip as a kid. He grew up loving comic strips and he loved things like Terry and the Pirates and Flash Gordon and Star King is a strip along those lines, like sort of adventure space, you know, Buck Rogers, uh, you know, Dick Tracy, all these, all these comic strips that all the big cartoonists that we grew, you know, we grew up hearing about these artists from the fifties and sixties, they all, when they were little kids, they wanted to draw comic strips or at least a lot of them because comic books wasn't even a thing. So a lot of them, especially in the fifties and sixties really thought that working in comic books as opposed to comic strips was a big step down. Alex Toth, even who was, you know, one of the biggest artists in comics in the fifties actually quit working in comic books to go be a ghost assistant on, uh, a Western comic strip. I believe he laid that's how he ended up in California as he moved to Los Gatos or somewhere to be an assistant and, and sort of, you know, ghost where he would draw someone else's strip under their name. And that was how much comic strips were viewed by a lot of these guys as being superior to comic books. So in the book, you really have to read it closely. You really have to kind of go to the end and come back to the beginning and read it again to, to sort of pick up all of it. But the book is as much about being a fan as it is about being a pro. And, you know, because almost no pros didn't start out as fans as kids. And Hal Crane, just like me and just like every other person who does comics, you know, grew up wanting comics to take them away from whatever their childhood misery was. You know, that's just, that's just how a lot of people, 
I think grew to love the, the, the art form, you know, during the depression, especially you'd see, you know, pictures of these kids just on the floor with these giant Sunday page sections. And, you know, you hear stories from them about, you know, that and listening to radio plays. And so that always really stuck with me and was something that was really important. So Star King, the comic strip Star King is about uh, some kind of, you know, American astronaut who gets sucked through a vortex in space and ends up on another planet and sort of becoming a hero. It's a very typical kind of John Carter of Mars, Flash Gordon, Adam Strange kind of idea. Um, so this is the the strip that that Hal Crane grew up sort of wishing he'd been a part of. And then he got into his, you know, chosen field when he was in his 20s and was an assistant for the guy who created it, who was sort of his mentor and hero. So also in the book, though, the thing that Hal is really, really famous for is not even in comic books. It's in uh, Saturday morning cartoons. Uh, and that was inspired by the fact that a lot of the big comic artists that we, you know, would have again grown up reading the Kirby's and, you know, Alex Toth and, you know, dozens of other comic book artists would go and they would work in animation because comic books doesn't have healthcare. And as you start to get older, you know, you start to look for stuff that will, you know, allow you to continue to be an artist in your chosen field to some degree while also making sure that you have, you know, the ability to go to a doctor and, you know, or, or the ability to reach more, you know, people with your work. And so you found a lot of these guys gravitating from comic books into storyboards and design and things like that for companies like Hanna-Barbera or Filmation and later uh, Ruby Spears, where, you know, Kirby and and uh, Steve Gerber and some other people created the cartoon you might remember from your childhood if you're old like me, Thundar the Barbarian. Um and uh, Danny Dagger and the Fantasticals is a fake Saturday morning cartoon that Sean and I created for this book as that is the thing that Hal Crane is most famous for. It's a Saturday morning cartoon from the late 60s that sort of came and went in a few seasons. But then in the early 70s, when the after school syndication became a huge thing, it took off like wildfire. And... That's inspired by things like, you know, Johnny Quest, which, you know, Toth had a big hand in creating Space Ghost, uh, Thundar, you know, uh, the Herculons, just all these kind of crazy uh, sci-fi sort of superhero-esque sci-fi adventure strips or adventure cartoons that were on when I was a kid. And up until, you know, I'm sure there's if there's a version of Saturday morning cartoons now, I'm sure there's still things like that. So Danny Dagger and the Fantasticals for those reading closely. Uh, and you really have to read between the lines on some of this stuff. Danny Dagger and the Fantasticals is sort of like a lift of Star King. Like Hal took his love of Star King. And when he went to work for the, the fake animation studio in the book, uh, he brought that 
you know, he brought those influences over and he helped create this cartoon or, I mean, in the book, I think he actually created it and they just, they keep referring to him as one of the people who worked on it. But, you know, that's the thing that gets under house skin constantly in his mind. It's his baby, but they ruined it. And, but Danny Dagger and the Fantasticals is a ridiculous name for, you know, what Hal would have probably called something more exciting. And so he's very bitter about this thing. But also the subtext under it that I was thinking of as I wrote it always is that on some level, Danny Dagger is him riffing on this thing that he grew up worshiping and wanting to be a part of. And so Danny Dagger, in another way, sort of layers into Hal's tragedy of his young life. And, you know, Danny Dagger is a cartoon about some kind of astronaut who, you know, named Danny Dagger, who ends up on this weird, crazy fantasy world where there's dragons and princesses and, you know, trolls in the forest and all sorts of stuff. And it's very much like a Johnny Quest meets Robin Hood kind of idea. And I loved the idea of Hal being a comic artist who started out wanting to be in comic strips, ended up going into comic books, becoming one of the biggest guys in his field, one of the the artists, artists that everyone else loves. He's never satisfied. He always tries to write his own stories and then editors rewrite them and in his mind ruin all of it. Um, you know, it's mentioned in the book that he did a distinguished run on uh, Zangar, which is if for longtime criminal readers will remember that Zangar is the character from Sword of the Sad which is the comic that Teague Lawless reads in prison. And the idea being that in the late 70s, Hal did sort of, uh, you know, nine issues of that while he was, you know, in between animation gigs, probably, or moving back into comics full time. And, you know, our story is narrated by Jacob, who in the late 80s, after high school, basically moved to a new city to, you know, live down the street from a guy who he grew up worshiping and be one of his, you know, two assistants inking backgrounds and filling in blacks and things like that. So that is, you know, is a thing that I thought was interesting. There's a scene in, uh, I believe it's the beginning of uh, Saturday uh, in the book. It's section Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And the opening scene in, in the Saturday section is probably my favorite scene in the whole book. Um, it's one of those things that's really hard to write when you're writing it. It's a mem it's a guy telling you about a memory and inside that memory, he sidetracked you to talk about his own memories of his own childhood, growing up a fan of this artist. And then he gets back to the other story and things like that. That kind of conversational sidetracking is stuff that I love to do, but is, is always very hard to pull off. It only works when you can, when you can make it sort of, seamless and you know having a first person narrator is key for things like that i think for being able to veer off into tangents it's very hard to veer off into tangents in the third person uh effectively um but that scene where hal sort of takes him to you know his secret library and unlocks this this you know cabinet where he's got these giant books stacked up is you know, that's the thing I've seen. I've gone to artist studios. I've seen the guys who collect old comic strips and they have these giant 
you know, blank sketch pads and they paste in the old strips. They'll buy old strips and they, and they kind of stick them down on pages in the order that they're supposed to be read. And I was really trying to get that reverence across that you see with these people. These are like these holy objects that, you know, until recently when there was a lot of uh, reprints of these classic old comic strips, you couldn't even get a lot of stuff like peanuts. The books that collected peanuts probably only collected about a third of the strips that came out every year. Like a lot of them just weren't collected because they'd look through the books and decide which ones were the funniest or which ones worked the best for collecting. And so a lot of the daily strips of these classic comic strips from the thirties and forties and fifties, you know, unless you're one of those crazy collectors who cuts them out of the paper every day and glues them into a book, they're just kind of lost to time. And so that moment of the, of the book at the beginning of Saturday is in many ways, one of the most significant scenes in the book because it establishes or reestablishes Hal's childhood as a huge fan of star King. And if you go back and you read the book again, you know, you go back and read those scenes and then that sort of sets you up for the ending. Okay, so I am literally about to spoil the ending of the book and actually analyze it a bit. So I cannot stress enough that if you haven't read the book and, you know, maybe if you're not even holding a copy of the book in your hand right now, please stop the podcast and go read the book before you listen to this part, because it'll just really piss me off to think that there are people spoiling the book before they even look at it. So, all right. So the end of the book is, <coughs> excuse me, a scene that is set up by the beginning of uh, Saturday. Now, throughout the book, Hal has been looking, has spent the weekend sort of trying to find some art that went missing. He got sick a few years earlier and allowed people to come into his house and visit him. And during that time period, he believes some art went missing. Uh, what you come to find out is the art that he chases down is not the art that he was looking for actually. And he, Jacob asks him after the award ceremony, you know, what is this art that you were looking for? And he basically just says, it's a mistake I made in my youth and I did, really didn't want it to get out. And that's where he leaves it. But Jacob knows exactly what he's talking about, because if you go back to that Saturday, he talks about, you know, how showing him this stuff. And then he sort of gets into that. If you were around how long enough, you'd get to these nights when he would be drunk enough that he would start into his sort of self pity mode. And he would be willing to tell you, you know, uh, probably five or 10 times in his life, he's told people this exact same story and they've all just kept it a secret, but he will tell you the true story of how Archie Lewis, the creator of star King died really, and what really happened. And so this scene actually reveals, you know, that secret. And it also reveals a second secret, which is that the art that Jacob has been helping how look for all weekend is, just sitting, you know, 10 feet away from where Hal was sleeping on the couch. Anyway, Hal drunkenly, shamefully gave the art to Jacob 10 years earlier. And what the art is, is the sample strips that 
Hal did when the studio went behind Archie Lewis's back and tried to get his assistant to take over his comic strip because Archie Lewis was trying to demand more money and ownership of the strip and all these things that a lot of cartoonists were actually going through at the time. I, Terry and the Pirates was a famous case where, you know, Milton Kniff stormed off and created Steve Cannon because he couldn't own the, the strip he created. Uh, very few of the cartoonists in the early days even in the newspaper strip industry actually owned their strips and that's why a lot of the strips still continue to this day with different people doing them um so this is in obviously it's the end of the book it's the point of the book in many ways if a book has a point um this is the moment where you realize that hal crane's biggest regret in his entire career is a fan regret. He wanted his hero's job so badly that he was willing to betray his own mentor to try to, to try to get his job. And the, the extra tragedy on top of it to me is that while he was actually sitting there and staying up nights after working for this guy, he would go home and sit and draw his own version of the strip and sort of make up what he would do next with it. There was no part of him that felt guilty about it. He wished he could feel guilty about it, but this was his childhood dream and it was coming true. And it wasn't until Archie Lewis found out about it that Hal realized what he'd actually done. Uh, and this of course leads to Archie Lewis's death and Hal, you know, being the guy that Hal turned out to be. And in trying to keep with the theme of the fandom angle on it, the final twist of the story, of course, is that when Hal gave the art to Jacob, it was, I, this is the best art I've ever done, but, it destroyed me and you need to take this away and burn it. And like, uh, Franz Kafka's friend who promised to burn all of his, uh, stuff that he didn't want published, uh, after he died, uh, Jacob, because he's such a fan of Hal's work, he can't bring himself to do it. And in fact, he takes that stuff out and looks at it from time to time and dreams of the world that might have been if Hal had actually gotten to take over that strip. So I think if you go back and you read the story again, knowing all this, uh, you know, hopefully some of that nuance and some of the, the murky world of being a comic fan and a comic creator and the, the sort of areas of gray, the, the things that we understand and accept about uh, comics as it is and fandom as it is. I think, you know, I hope that the book says something about that. If books say something about anything, um, but yeah, so that's Bad Weekend. I hope you enjoyed this uh, thing of me rambling on about the book a bunch. And uh, thanks to my friends for helping me with some questions. And thanks to Ben Blacker for putting this up and probably editing this part off where I thank everybody. Uh, Bad Weekend is available as of uh, July 10th, wherever you buy books, comics, graphic novels, digital media, uh, air, whatever you buy with, uh, any kind of funding that happens. And, uh, I think they're going to play the song again. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop now and listen to the song with you guys. All right. Bye. Forever. Dog. This has been a forever dog production executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.
engineered and mastered by Alex Arche. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.